Well, good morning. It's good to see you this morning. Thanks. Good to see you this morning. As you can imagine, this is a day of mixed emotions for us. Uh, we are really excited about what we feel God has called us to in this step to go to Nashville. Um, we've been excited about this for some time and, and really kind of actually in some ways we're really anxious about it and we're just ready to move forward with it. I mean, there's only so much you can do to plant a church in Nashville in Tulsa. <laughs> and so we're really trying to get on the ground and do that. And then at the very same time, um, we're really going through a grieving process uh, because this is a, a big step for us. We have, uh, we're leaving the city and, and this community really is, the, um, is really the main thing that we're grieving right now, that you all have been just amazing to us and have embraced us in a really special way and have seen us through a lot of journeys in our life. And uh, we're just so thankful for you. We're thankful for these pastors and uh, what they've meant for our life. And um, not only my parents, so I'm incredibly thankful for them, but your parents are kind of supposed to like you and affirm you and celebrate you. And so I'm very thankful for Ed and Gail. And they have just been very special in our lives in this season in their celebration and affirmation of us. And really, we feel empowered to do what we're going to do. And uh, we really wouldn't be able to do what we're going to do if it wasn't for the experiences we've had in this place. So thank you very much. Um, I want to begin today by looking at some pictures of Jesus. Let's take a look at a few of these pictures. This first one is uh, we'll call it the Byzantine Jesus. This was painted during the time of the Byzantine Empire. And really, this was a time in the world where emperors ruled the world by conquest. Jesus here is painted as a conqueror. He is seen as, a, uh, as an emperor, if you will. You see here he's in military garb. The cross is almost like a weapon for him over his back. Uh, we see that in this particular culture. Let's look at the next one. This one we'll call the medieval Jesus. You see in the medieval world that Jesus was often depicted as pain-drenched, pain-stricken, eyes sunken in, very thin, suffering. Suffering at this time was celebrated and was exalted. So we see that in Jesus here. Let's look at the next one. This one uh, was done in 1940. We might call this the Anglo-Saxon Jesus. This is uh, Jesus at this time, and actually many of us have probably grown up with depictions of Jesus where he is very fair-skinned. He has a beard, but he's also clean-cut. He has a kind of light emanating from him. Um, so that's what this image would look like. Let's look at the next one. This was an interesting marketing campaign that was done in the 1990s in the United Kingdom, the church was trying to convince the uh, young people that Jesus was not just meek and mild, like the image that we saw before, but that Jesus was a revolutionary. So he is done in the style of a Che Guevara here, who's a Marxist revolutionary. And so this was a, a, um, an image that was done. So look at the next one. Now, I, I hope I don't offend some of you today that might have this in your office, <laughs> but... Uh, this is a very American Jesus. This is an American business Jesus. Jesus is a corporate partner or a board member with me. He is present in my business transactions and my decision making. Now, for some of you, when you see these images, um, you might feel drawn to some of them. Some of you, you might feel repelled by some of them. Uh, I imagine some of you would pick and choose. I kind of like that one, and I don't like this one. And it often raises the question for us, when these things are done, when these, these portrayals are done of Jesus, is this something really right that's done? Is this a right thing to do? Is this something that's wrong to do? Is there something inherently wrong about this? 
Is it neutral? Is it kind of, you know, not good or not bad? Or, as I would suggest today, there is something inherently right about this and something inherently wrong about this as well. Let me explain. As Christians, we believe in this really beautiful thing called the incarnation, that Jesus, that God took on human flesh in the form of Jesus, that he took on our human experiences. And today I want to talk about the incarnation, and I want to talk about two movements, we'll call them movements today, of the incarnation. The first one is the movement of solidarity. And this is a movement, this is recognizing that Christ came into our world, that he embraced and embraces us fully and completely. He accepted and accepts us just as we are. He wraps our arms around us. God was not distant from us, but he has come close to us. He entered every part of the human experience, including death. He took on humanity. This is a movement of solidarity. It's incredibly beautiful. And this means... That if Jesus embraces and embraced human cultures or humanity, he also embraced human cultures, the work of our hand. That he wraps his arms around all of our cultures all around the world and embraces us and accepts us. This means that God actually uses human cultures, that he works in human cultures, that God even embraces and uses languages and style, and social mores, and climate, and all the things that make up culture. Tim Keel, who is a pastor in Kansas City, he said it this way. I like how he said it. He said, we cannot approach God acontextually. Acontextually means outside of a culture that we're part of. We always experience and know God provisionally within a context. We always use the resources, tools, and imaginative frameworks of our times to engage God and one another. So it is so important that we recognize that all communication, religious or otherwise, is culturally conditioned. We can't communicate something to one another without it coming from our cultural presuppositions. It always is part of that. An example of this, in Tulsa, we have a restaurant called Elmer's Barbecue, and it be bad. Okay, that's their tagline. Now, you have to come with certain cultural presuppositions to be able to understand that that is a good thing, right? It be bad is their tagline. Otherwise, you're going to drive by their sign and go, well, if that's bad, I want good barbecue. I'm going to go somewhere else, right? It's always rooted in a context. So there's no such thing as language or communication that is outside of a culture or outside of a context. Even the phrase Jesus is Lord is this way. If I were to say to you, Jesus is Lord, I am dependent on the English language for that. Jesus is Lord. I'm dependent on the translation. I'm dependent on the grammatical structure. But also, I am dependent on there's several meanings of the word Lord in English. So I am hoping that you come today with some cultural presuppositions to when I say Jesus is Lord, you get some sense of what that means or able to understand that. These pictures that we looked at They each come out of a different cultural perspective. And I don't think they're done to as an accurate historical depiction. I don't think it's this is exactly what Jesus looked like. But it's people from a particular culture communicating to a particular culture something about the nature and attribute of Jesus. Now, we could argue about whether they're good things they're trying to communicate or bad things that they're trying to communicate. But it comes out of that culture. Our Bible has been translated into thousands and thousands of languages. 
The beautiful thing about this is that God uses, God chooses to use human cultures and actually the process of translation, if you've done any kind of language studies, you know, the process of translation is more of an art than it is a science. It's about storytelling. It's about communicating that story in an effective and and meaningful way to an existing culture. God uses that. He uses the relational act of storytelling and language to move his kingdom forward. So culture in and of itself is not bad. It's not. But there is a second movement of the incarnation. The first one is a movement of solidarity of embrace. The second is a movement of transformation. And this recognizes that Christ came into our world to challenge the culture, to critique the culture, to call the culture to go beyond itself in its current state. Our world is broken because of sin. Humanity is broken. This means that all of our human cultures are also broken. And so all of our cultures must be challenged and must come to a place of recognizing their dependence on God. We have to be, choose to be people of both movements, solidarity and transformation. Now, both of these are movements of love. Embrace, coming close, God wrapping his arms around us is an act of love. The desire to heal and restore us and transform us and lead us into something greater is also an act of love. So we're not talking about balancing love and wrath or anything like that. These are both acts of God's love, the desire to embrace and to transform. And often where we miss the mark is where we emphasize and lean into one completely and we forget about the other. Alan and Deb Hirsch, they are church planters from Australia, and they're in Los Angeles now. They say, as missionaries following the traces of God, we must affirm that which is genuinely good and present in every human culture. For many aspects are indeed wholesome and true and affirmed by the gospel. But the opposite is also true. There is a lot that is dehumanizing, degrading, and evil. And the disciple is called to somehow, keyword is somehow, discern the difference between it and what is good. Sometimes we can focus on the movement of solidarity and forget about the movement of transformation. We can think a lot about embrace and forget about the challenge. When we do this, then our life becomes all about kind of accommodating the gospel to our given culture. So for example, and we might not know anything about this, I'm sure you don't know anything about this, but let's say that you hypothetically live in a culture that is very consumeristic, okay? That has consumerism at its core. So life becomes all about buying and selling and what I can get and kind of obtain for myself and materialism. Well, if that's the case, then the gospel can often be seen as just a product to be bought and sold, something that I own or something I can manage. If Let's say that you live in a culture, again, we know nothing about this, but let's say you live in a culture that tends to emphasize personal experience, right? Then oftentimes the gospel can only be about this personal experience between me and Jesus, and we can forget about the greater story of the Christian faith. On the other side, let's say that we, uh, you emphasize, can tend to emphasize transformation and forget about solidarity, This is where we can get into moral legalism. Life is all about just getting better and getting right. Get over it. Move on. Um, Stop sinning and get better. I think about the 
the preacher who Pastor Ed sometimes channels when he kind of shakes his cheeks at you, right? That that would be a guy who's emphasizing transformation without solidarity. Just get right, get better. I can't do it the same way that he can. But if, thank you. But if we emphasize, if we, if we emphasize transformation without solidarity, it becomes about moral legalism. We forget about the call that the call of the gospel is to embrace sinners just as they are. And then we can forget about process and the fact that Christ has come close to us to walk with us in the journey. Our call is to be a people of both solidarity and transformation. And it's not about finding balance, kind of trying to find somewhere in the middle. It's about trying to live both fully and completely with all that we are. Our desire should be to be a people of solidarity and transformation. Today, I want to talk about what does it mean to be a people of a place, a people who are rooted in and in conversation with the particular culture or cultures of our day. Um, what is our role to live as the people of God faithfully in this place? We'll look at Genesis chapter 2, starting with verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then he talks about the rivers that go through there, and then verse 15 the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. Human beings here from the very beginning of our story, we see are called to create culture. Culture and cultivate come from our same root word. They're called to cultivate the soil or the ground to create this culture, to cultivate the world. Adam and Eve are given a particular place, a garden to tend. Now notice their, their call is not to create life. Only God creates life. And also their call is not to make things grow because uh, if you've ever done any gardening, you know that sometimes it's not all on you to make the plants grow, right? Sometimes you can do everything you possibly can and, and all this stuff and it still doesn't grow. God is the one who creates life and he is also the one to, who sustains life. But instead, they're called to tend a space, to cultivate a space for growth. We then see in the story that sin enters the world. Because Adam and Eve choose to overstep their call as cultivators. And they choose that they want to be like God on their own terms. And when this happens, not only does the break have an effect on them personally, but somehow it begins to break the world. Creation breaks. All humanity and all of society that will come after them will show signs of this brokenness because of sin. But the beautiful thing about our story is that God does not give up on his people when sin enters the world. God actually wants for people to be part of this cultivation of this creating of culture. So God calls a people in Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curse you, I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. Abraham is promised a place. 
His descendants are a people of a place. They are rooted in a particular space. So they're not, as Pastor Ed was talking about in communion, they're not a disembodied people who are above physicality and they just kind of float from place to place. No, they're rooted in an actual physical place. Even though they're not always in that place, that place is all, and read the Old Testament, that place is always their reference point. But the place of their rootedness is not the last word. It's a jumping off point. They were blessed to be a blessing to the world. So the children of Israel are a people to bless all peoples. That means that the promised land is a place to bless all places. And when the children of Israel forget that, that's where they go off track. So we see eventually that they will enter the promised land and they begin to build an empire. And as they build an empire, they start forgetting their call that it's, the blessing is not just for themselves, but it's for all people. And so they start doing things that Yahweh has commanded them not to do. They acquire a lot of wealth. They acquire military strength, and they actually own slaves. So we see that at this point in the story, the people of a place who have been rooted in a space, the people of a place have now become displaced. They're taken out of their place and they're dropped into a foreign oppressive empire in Babylon. They lose, as they hoard the blessing, they lose the blessing. And that's where we get in Psalm 137, um, this psalm that says, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Zion is Jerusalem or the promised land. There on the poplars, we hung our harps. For there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, um, sing us one of those songs of Zion. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while we're in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, if I forget my place, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. So they are a people of a place in a foreign land remembering the place, their place, where they were rooted. And they say, in this foreign land, we don't know how to sing our songs. We don't know how to sing the songs of that place in a foreign land. We don't have any context for this. How can we tell our stories? How can we sing our songs in a foreign land? The context doesn't allow it. And the whole time that the children of Israel are in captivity, first here in Babylon and then in Persia and then in Rome, that could be the question that describes their time in captivity. How do we sing our songs in a foreign land? There have been uh, a lot of people who have drawn a parallel between the state of the children of Israel at this time in Babylon and the state of Christianity currently in the Western world. Personally, I don't think we're fully there. Uh, Christianity is still the primary and dominant religion in the United States. Um, especially, I mean, even our calendar and our language, and a lot of that is rooted in the Christian tradition. Um, but we look around the, around the country and even around the world, and we see that that kind of is starting to change. Um, if we look at Europe, we look at some places in the United States. Um, here in Tulsa, we might notice that most people identify themselves as Christian that we run into, but even that is changing. I had a unique opportunity to speak to a pastor from San Francisco, and um, I asked him, I said, hey, so San Francisco, the culture there and the culture in Tulsa, they're kind of different, right? And he said, yes, they're kind of different. He said, but I, I actually like the Midwest. He said, because people are still hopeful about religion and faith. 
They still believe that it has something to say to our world. And in San Francisco, he believed that they had given up on that. But I think even here in Tulsa, the church is being challenged because we're having to find ourselves grappling with this question, how do we live our faith in a culture that's rapidly changing? The questions of our culture may not even be the same questions that were asked of the last generation or the generation before that. So we ask ourselves, do our songs, do our stories, do who we are, do they make sense in a foreign culture or a different or a changing culture? And I believe that they do. But I think that our challenge is to allow our story and our songs to challenge ourselves And to ask ourselves, how is the Holy Spirit using and working through solidarity and transformation in the midst of these cultures at this time? So how do the children of Israel respond when they're living in a foreign land, they're living in Babylon in exile? um, How do they respond? How does God tell them to respond? I want to draw our attention for a moment to the book of Jeremiah chapter 29. And I refuse to read verse 11. The prophet sent, the prophet Jeremiah had actually sent this letter from Jerusalem, which is their place, to those living in exile in Babylon. And it said this, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says to all those I carried in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses, settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you in exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, so too will you prosper. So their command from God in a foreign culture in exile, a place that's not their land, where it sounds like their songs and their stories don't seem to make sense, their command from God is not run away from this culture. It's not isolate from this culture. It's not try to destroy the dominant culture. It's not to create an Israel subculture. But the idea here is that you participate in culture that you seek the peace and the prosperity of the city and the place in which you live. That's what we're called to do and to be. Do we do that? Sometimes in our world as followers of Jesus, when we bump against, against things that don't seem to make sense to our story and to our songs, is our posture to run away, to build up walls, or is our posture to look towards the culture with embrace and with challenge, with love? So important also to realize that for the Jewish people moving forward, exile didn't end once they got back to the promised land. Um, They got back to their land. Eventually, they were taken back to Jerusalem, but they were still under the thumb of empires. Uh, They still were under the thumb of Persia and of Rome. They were able to be in their own land, but they were still under this oppressive regime. So this context, the Roman Empire, is the one that Jesus is born He lives, he dies, and he rises again. Jesus teaches primarily in Galilee, and then he dies and and raises again in Jerusalem. Jerusalem then becomes the hub of the new church. When people begin to follow Jesus as Lord and this, this group begins to grow, we see the events of the upper room actually happens in Jerusalem, in their place, perhaps on the Temple Mount. 
The church continues to grow in a Jewish context. They're meeting in synagogues, and um, they're causing the Roman authorities to wonder, okay, so do we treat these new followers of Jesus like the Jewish people, or do we treat them as something different? Because it's starting to explode within a Jewish context. But this new church would not have an exclusively Jewish identity for long because the Holy Spirit begins working among the Gentiles. We see that a Roman centurion in the book of Acts is converted. An Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. The Holy Spirit is at work among outsiders and those of different ethnicities. And with this change in ethnicity came this same old question. Now that the world is changing, how do we live our songs? How do we live our story in a foreign land? There were all kinds of cultural questions they had to answer. So, okay, these new spirit-empowered Gentiles, do they have to be circumcised? Do they have to obey the Sabbath laws? Do they have to eat the food that we eat, or can they eat the food that they eat? And this was really the, the whole backdrop of the New Testament is this conflict going on between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. It took the powerful transformation of this guy named Saul Paul. He had two names. And also... The vision of this guy, Peter, who is one of Jesus's closest friends, to begin to turn the tide. And finally, in Acts 15, the church elders of Jerusalem, they decide, okay, cultural practices should not keep people from following Jesus, should not keep them from being a spirit-empowered people and part of this new church. And as they do that, something really interesting happens. The church that has been thriving in Jerusalem now finds its hub shifting, and it goes to Antioch. Antioch now becomes the place where the church thrives and develops. This place has moved. It's gone out. The gospel has gone out to new cultures and different cultures, because I would argue that is the nature of the gospel, is it's going out. Paul continues then, this Jewish rabbi, Paul, continues proclaiming the gospel of King Jesus to the Gentiles. He has one really interesting encounter in Acts 17, where he goes to Athens. Athens at this time, if you can picture it, had the economic power of New York City, the political power of Washington, D.C., and the entertainment power of Los Angeles. So he enters Athens, and it says he's distressed, because everywhere he looks, he sees all these statues to all these gods, all these pagan deities. And there's one in particular that's very interesting. It says, to an unknown god. So in case we left anybody out with all of our statues, here's one to an unknown god. It says Paul was really distressed by that, but all the people, when he started talking about Jesus and the resurrection, they thought he was a babbler. But they said, you know, there's something to this. So why don't you come to the Areopagus where we talk about our philosophical ideas and we can hash it out there. And it's really amazing when Paul addresses the philosophers in Athens, we see this double movement of solidarity and transformation at work in what he says. First of all, he's in solidarity with the people. He's speaking their language, Greek. He's in the philosophical world. He's speaking kind of in, in their arena, in their, uh, in their place. And he compliments them. He says, I see you're a really religious people. And actually, you even have one to, you have a statue to an unknown God. Let me tell you about that unknown God. He is the true God and he has drawn close to you and he loves you and he embraces us and, and, and he has been reaching out to us for a long time. And then he says, this guy, Jesus has rose, risen from the dead. 
So he's in solidarity with them. He also does something interesting. He quotes one of their poets or one of their songwriters. When I was in children's church, we used to sing a song, in him we live and move and have, thank you, our being. Okay, I am the only one that sang that in children's church, but that's okay. But I felt gypped by that because they didn't ever tell me that that song was originally written to a pagan deity. (laughs) I was singing a song written to a pagan deity, but Paul co-ops it. He says, just like your own poets have said, in him we live and move and have our being. Let me tell you about the God in him we live and move and have our being. So not only is he then in solidarity with them, he embraces them, he comes close to them, but also it is clear that he engages the second movement. Paul says repentance is needed. There is something higher and greater than what you're currently doing than what you're currently worshiping. And God wants to lead you into that. That God desires for your healing and your transformation. And he is not like these other gods. He's not built with gold and and silver. And actually God is going to judge the world. But he's gonna judge the world through this person of Jesus. And the way that he proved that is he rose from the dead. So he's in solidarity and transformation. He seeks solidarity and transformation for the people of Athens. Christianity is the only major religion that has a true and deep sense of place, but is not tied to one particular place as the center of its faith. If you look at other world religions, um, they are rooted in place. Hinduism will always be rooted in India, um, uh, Islam will always be rooted in Mecca and a few other places around there. Christianity is tied to place, it is centered, it is rooted in place, but it's not one particular place because the incarnation is always going out to new places. The gospel is always encountering new cultures. But this is really hard for us because a lot of times we want to jump to only solidarity or we want to jump to only transformation. It is so hard to live both of those faithfully. I think this is illustrated by Dr. Richard Halverson. He says this quote, Christianity was birthed in Galilee as a relationship. It spread to Greece and became a philosophy. It spread to Rome and became an empire. It spread to Britain and became a culture. It spread to America and became an enterprise. We wrestle with this. How do we live faithfully in different cultures? So what does this mean for us? Well, I believe that all of us as followers of Jesus are called to be cultivators and culture creators in our everyday life. Those of you who are musicians, you really what you do is you cultivate sound, right? Those of you who are artists, you cultivate images, If you're a teacher or you are a healthcare worker or you're a social worker, you cultivate health and growth in people's lives. If you work with numbers or you work with logistics, you are really cultivating as stewards of resources, the best stewardship of resources, and that is a beautiful thing. Now, some of you are here today and you say, I'm just a barista. You have the most beautiful job, I'm telling you. (laughs) You handcraft those beverages, and we are so thankful for that. Yes, amen. But seriously, in addition to that, you, you are a cultivator of relationships. Relationships are a part of culture. They are a huge part of culture. All of us on our jobs and the interaction with people, we are cultivators and we are culture creators in all that we do. Some of you work with words and you cultivate language. Some of you are lawyers and you mediate conflict within a culture. All of that is beautiful. 
We believe that our job is to be like a garden of the resurrection right here and now and wherever we go and however God uses us throughout the day. As Christ followers, we are to bring healing and restoration as a people of embrace and a people who challenge and seek God's highest good for the culture. So what ways is God calling you to seek after this solidarity and this embrace? What ways is God calling you to challenge and seek his transformation for the world? I actually think this is what it means to be a sacrament. You've heard that that's the name of our new church that we're starting, a sacrament. And I believe when we come to the table here, that we actually see this double movement at work. That as you come to the table, we believe in open communion here, that Christ wraps his arms around you fully and completely. He accepts each of us just as we are, no matter what baggage we came in with, no matter what brokenness is in our life, he wraps his arms around us. And at the exact same time, God challenges us. He seeks transformation and healing for us, and we are empowered to live that in the world. We are called to be a sacramental people, that everywhere we go, we're a little piece of this double movement, that, that God embraces us and he challenges our culture. We are to live as those people. The gospel is always going out, always speaking to and challenging more and more people. And that's our heart as we plant this new church in Nashville. And my, my hope is that your prayer for us would be that we always stay faithful to both movements, because it's so easy to jump into one or to the other that we would be a people of solidarity, of embrace, and we would be a people who seek transformation and healing for the culture and cultures that we're entering into. Thank you so much.